you're in that rut, if you're feeling discouraged and lonely, you have the power to restart your day right now and just really pull yourself out of this. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode. Today, I'm with Martin Warren, who's been gracious enough to take some time to to speak with us. And Martin, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me today. So we met just about three years ago. We were in uh, peer support training together down in Covington. Remember that? Absolutely. Yeah, that was such a good time. I can't believe it's already... Uh, been three years. It's a uh, it's amazing because I'm still in the field now, so it's pretty cool. So you're still what? What are you doing with the with the field of peer support? Uh, so right now I am uh, I'm the uh, outreach coordinator for the Peer Recovery Community Center in Newport, and we operate under the Mental Health America umbrella, and uh, we provide education, hope, and advocacy for those that uh, are living with mental health and substance use disorders. Wonderful. Okay, um, and I was looking on your Facebook page, and it looks like you've got a uh, sobriety anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's been such a beautiful journey, and uh, uh, if I continue to stay humble and uh, teachable, uh, May 8th, I will have four years um, of uh, continuous sobriety from meth and alcohol addiction, and uh, what a journey this has been. It's just been beautiful, so I'm really glad to to, to, to share that with people today, because I know yeah. so many people shared their stories with me when, uh, I first got sober. Right. Well, congratulations. Well, let's get into your story. Uh, th- I usually like to start at the beginning and, and talk about, uh, your childhood and, and we'll just kind of go chronologically through your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it started on a small in a small town in England. Really? Yeah, it sounds pretty dramatic, but it's the truth. Um, I uh, in uh, 1991, um, I immigrated here with my parents from a small town in England uh, called Ipswich. Um, my mom and my uh, biological father um, uh, got a divorce, and my mom remarried to an American who was from Newport, and. Uh, We moved here, and what I can tell you is that experience was very traumatic for me, leaving a uh, small town and moving to the west side of Newport and going to Newport schools. Let me tell you, those kids had a field day with me because I was gay, fat, and I had a British accent. And I'm telling you, those kids had a field day with me. Um, Mm. They were always asking me to say words like, Martin, say butter again, because they would always want to hear me say butter, you know. <laughs> so, so I just remember at a very young age that uh, just being teased for being different. I was the very creative, artsy kid that uh, that uh, was very into music and not so much into sports. And I remember my stepdad very desperately tried to get me into American football and. Um, and I felt like I was just being forced to be a part of a culture that just wasn't, that didn't mold really who I was as a person. Like I said, I've always been very artistic and creative. 
Um, I mean, give me some markers and popsicle sticks and I'll make something cool out of it. You know, that's always the attitude I've had. And uh, I just remember at a young age, my parents always wanted me to do sports and it just wasn't my thing. Um, my mother, um, I've always felt when I was growing up was just emotionally unavailable. Uh, you know, typically, you know, traditionally, a mother is supposed to be a comforter, uh, someone who uh, consoles you during a time of heartache and pain. And my mother didn't really have those skills uh, to show that parental role with me. Um, I'll never forget at a young age coming home and saying to my mom, you know, mom, uh, I'm being bullied at school. And I remember her getting upset with me like it was my fault instead of comforting me and saying, you know, Martin, it's okay to be different. It's okay to think this way. It's okay to see the world this way. But instead, I felt like I got in trouble for telling her I was being bullied. And that's when I learned at a very young age that um, I had to kind of keep silent about my struggles. And, um, and that process kind of led on into my adulthood too. Even when my addiction, there were times where um, I was really struggling with my addiction and I did not know how to ask for help. I was always afraid to ask for help because I was afraid I was going to get in trouble by asking for help. And that attitude really came from that, that core belief that I had as a child that, you know, you're not really supposed to show weakness. You're supposed to kind of deal with things on your own and um, asking for help is a sign of weakness. So, um, you know, growing up, I got really into music and art and really excelled in those classes at school. I went to Newport High School, had a great education at Newport. Real quick, what, when did you leave England? How, how um, old? Um, I was eight years old when I left England. I mean, you, you made a hard switch coming to into a bullying situation, into a you know, Western philosophy and all that kind of stuff. But how was your your childhood in England? My childhood in England was great. My father was really into birds and fishing and wildlife. And I'm still today and fascinated by that. I was just telling my current boyfriend uh, uh, just last week, I said, you know what? I've always just had this really odd fascination with birds and flight. Um, I don't know where that came from. And then I started talking about my dad and how my dad was really into home. My dad raised homing pigeons for years. I think he still does it today. Uh, he does do it today. And um, I just remember uh, as a young kid uh, going into the pigeon shed with him and I would ask questions about pigeons and, you know, how come they can fly so many distances and things like that. I also had a uh, great experience with him fishing and things like that too. So very close with my grandparents. All of my cousins are the same age. I was actually supposed to go home to England next month on the 8th on my four-year anniversary, and I had to cancel my trip because of the oh, coronavirus. Man. Yeah, so yeah. we'll reschedule for December. Okay, so you get you you come over here. You, you're you're now in high school, and okay, so you can you can continue. I, I had to just clear up a couple of things there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So high school was actually um, somewhat very fun for me. Um, the bullying kind of subsided. Every now and then I'll have somebody make some sly remark about, you know, how I acted. And uh, I had some feminine traits that people used to make fun of. But overall, I had a really good experience in high school. Um, in high school, I got really involved in church. I uh, was a, a member of the Nazarene Church in Northern Kentucky. and 
did the traditional summer church camps and youth concerts and things like that and became really uh, devoted with my faith in Christianity. I also, during this time, learned that I was gay. And it was, uh, that's when I learned how to live a, a double life. Because on Sunday morning, I would be praising the Lord and actively involved in youth group. And then during the day, I was lusting over other guys in the school or men in the church, and then binge eating food. And that was really my original addiction was food addiction. Um, I re- I'm recently celebrating 90 days on the, uh, tomorrow from uh, binge eating disorder, and I haven't binged in 90 days. So that's a, Congratulations. a milestone for me as well in that area too. Um, but uh, during this time, I uh, decided that I was going to go to a Christian college because if I went to a Christian college, nobody would suspect that I was gay. And I mean, like, come on, they all knew, but I had myself fooled. And, and that's really when that delusional thinking started for me is uh, really thinking that people had no idea what I was doing, but people knew. And, uh, and that's where I really learned to live that double life, you know, being a good Christian, you know, guy, during the week and then on the weekends getting into things that uh, a typical 17 and 18 year old shouldn't be getting involved in. So um, during that time, that's when I, like I said, I decided I was going to go to a Christian college and I did, I um, enrolled and got accepted into a private Christian college up in Mount Vernon, Ohio, where I studied graphic design. And that's where a lot of the mental health uh, challenges really started started. Uh, my substance use didn't really start until I was 22 years old. So during that time of being in college, uh, just focusing on art and uh, my, I couldn't really excel academically. I got kicked out three times because of my academics, because I was struggling with my sexuality as well as um, mental health and abandonment issues with my family. So you're really navigating this whole thing on your own. How, how was the relationship with your mother? Uh, th- did you tell her or, or did you assume that she wouldn't be there for you and just did it on your own? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I, I've always felt, I still today struggle with loneliness. Sometimes I'm just learning the tools on how to deal with that. And it really started when I was in college because what I saw was all the other students had very close relationships with their parents. Their parents would come and bring them you know, food on the weekends or their parents would stop by and drop off, you know, socks or, and I just noticed that like my parents never did that. And I always wondered why. And I always related that to as that, um, I wasn't lovable. I wasn't good enough. And, um, and I remember being very clingy with my friends at the college because the school was very small. We only had 1200 students in the entire university. And I remember clinging on to other people and their families and always just questioning, like, why is my family not like this? Why, why do we not celebrate holidays together? Why are we kind of very distant from each other? Why do we not show love to each other like these other families? And I did. I felt very alone in that process. And I, that loneliness stuck with me for a number of years. I recently just got over that feeling of loneliness probably about six, seven months ago in my recovery. When did you tell your mom and stepdad uh, that you thought you were gay or, or the, the, in, in going through that? Um, I, I, I remember uh, 
I woke up one morning at the college and we had chapel three days a week where we would have church service. And I remember I was taking a class called History and Faith of the Biblical Communities. I know it's such a mouthful. It was Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 10, 10 a.m. And it was a, a course where you start from the Bible, the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and you study the Bible. And I remember we got to a part of the Bible where they were talking about homosexuality. And I remember just sitting in there crawling in my skin. I'm like, there are these people known gay and I'm going to go to hell. And uh, just thinking some really negative things about myself. And I remember going to chapel at 1020, just 10 minutes after the class let out. And there was an altar call. And I remember going down to the altar. And I said, God, you know why I'm here. And I humbly ask you to remove this from me, you know? And I remember there was this voice that came in my head that said, Martin, you are who you are. And I made you in my image and I love you. I remember getting up, walking out, packing my things and just leaving the college. And um, when I came home, I didn't come out until I was 26 and I was 22. So from the time I was 22 until the time I was 26, I, I started, um, abusing um, pain, uh, pain uh, not pain pills, uh, stimulants like ADHD, Vyvanse, psychostimulant medication typically to treat ADHD. And, and I remember getting an apartment, losing the apartment. I didn't really think I had a problem. And then I called my mom up. This was in January of 2008. And I said, mom, there's two things I need to share with you. And I don't want you to be frightened. Mind you, I'm always, I've always been afraid to talk to my mom about things because of the situation we had when I was younger. And I said, mom, uh, two things. The first thing is I'm gay. And the second thing is I think I have a problem with drugs and alcohol. And I shared that with her. She, my parents have, are very open and accepting of LGBTQ people. They've always been that way. And I remember telling my mom I had a drug problem and she just dismissed it. And, and I internalized that as she just didn't care. Um, and that's when I decided I was going to get out of Cincinnati and I was going to move and start over. And that's when I moved to North Carolina. So what did, uh, what drew you to North Carolina? Um, while I was a student at Mount Vernon, Nazarene University, I worked in the, at the, during the summertime, I worked for the Salvation Army as an outdoor education coordinator. So I would uh, do, teach the high ropes course, low ropes course, zip line, um, all those different things, those outdoor activities. I got a job in North Carolina doing that in the mountains uh, in Reedsville. And uh, and I just thought that would be a great way for me to get away from the drugs. But I found myself still drinking and using while I was down there. Um, I didn't know that we take our, during that time, I didn't know that we still take our problems with us wherever we go when they're not resolved. Right. Um, and that was a great example of making that geographical move um, and still having the same problems. Um, so during this time, were you just inside, just crumbling? mentally just trying to, I mean, it's, it's so hard to do something on your own uh, when you've got all this anguish and self-doubt and sadness. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a very lonely time for me and because I was dealing with having the, uh, the start of conversations around addiction and I just came out. Typically 
historically when gay men come out, there's this burst of energy. Like there's this relief. Like I want to go to gay bars, go to drag shows. I want to go to pride. I want to get drunk. I didn't really have that experience. Um, I was in the mountains of North Carolina teaching kids how to uh, collect frogs and specimens and hiking and things like that. But I ended up getting kicked, uh, fired from that position because um, I was not uh, behaving appropriately. And I told you that I, it's very, it was very, uh, I, I learned how to live a double life um, as a young boy, uh, being gay and a Christian. So I decided, because I was a graphic design student, I decided to look for another job where I could transplant somewhere else. And I found a job in Austin, Texas, and they needed a fitness instructor to teach group exercise classes at this uh, weight loss camp for teenagers. I said, I'm not a, uh, I know that I was never a personal trainer. I've never had that certification or that skill set. So with my graphic design uh, <laughs> capabilities, I created a fake certificate that I had completed and I sent it to them and I got hired. And I remember, this is where it gets really comical because I got hired, they flew me to Austin and they needed me to teach group exercise classes. I have zero experience. So I was up all night on YouTube watching on how to, you know, count music and beats per minute and how to incorporate movement. And uh, This is the day, but this is the day before. Oh, this is like the day before and <laughs> I'm going through my employment at this uh, company. And um, I lost a bunch of weight. And uh, I was like, you know what? I can do this. And, and I was living a lie the entire time, you know. And uh, I, at the end of the summer, they came to me and said, Martin, you did such a great job. The kids loved you and you're reliable and your fitness classes are super fun. You know, we want to uh, hire you to work at our main location in California starting next week. And I said, oh my gosh, I got to do this again, <laughs> you know? And it's like, uh, I end up taking that job and moving out to California. This is in 2008, summer of 2008. I moved out there and um, I worked for this company as a fitness instructor, uh, a program um, specialist and had a really good time. And, you know, and I felt like I kind of left everything behind here in Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky and just started my life new. And that's when that, that fall I was introduced to crystal meth. I met a guy at a bar and he introduced me to crystal meth. And that's really where my addiction and I just spiraled out of control from that point. And that stuff doesn't take very long to get hooked. Yeah, not at all. I mean, I, I, I still tell people, you know, I've always struggled with abandonment issues. I've always struggled with mental health. I've always struggled with these core beliefs. I'm a lonely, unlovable person. It was a perfect storm for Crystal Matthews. I remember the first time I ever used meth. It was as somebody walked into an old attic full of spider webs and old books. They just turned on a light. The electricity came on and, oh, like there was this light and the room just lit up. And that's just how I felt the first time I used methamphetamine. And I remember all of my inhibitions went out the window. I could take my clothes off and not feel insecure about my body. I could talk about things that are normally awkward. Um, I became pleasant. I became confident. And, and that's really what I was looking for because I've always felt like 
I was lonely, insecure, and uh, with low self-esteem. And it was just a perfect drug because if you know anything about methamphetamine, it really heightens your mood. And if you, you know, uh, releases all those dopamine levels that, I mean, are catastrophic to the point where your brain actually depletes itself after a certain amount of time from using. So um, I was in this relationship with this guy for a very long time. He was my first boyfriend, my first love, and he introduced me to that drug. And the relationship was really based around meth and that there was really no true intimacy or connection. It was all based on drugs and things like that. So what were you doing uh, uh, out there? So, so did you, you're working at this, uh, the workout place, right? The exercise? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was working at the same company that I worked at in Austin. And uh, I ended up leaving that job because my boyfriend at the time had asked me to quit. Uh, he owned a bunch of restaurants and uh, he just wanted me to stay home. And um, and I thought, well, this is kind of nice. You know, I, I'm just uh, this young kid. I was 26 from Newport, Kentucky, living out in California. And I don't have to work. I'm like, this is just great. I get to just sit at home and smoke meth all day. I mean, like, what a treat, you know? And, uh, and that's really what my attitude was. And, you know, it was when I first started using, it was one of those things where, you know, uh, typically when you think of methamphetamine, you think of someone down in Eastern Kentucky, you know, Tiger King, you know, remember his husband with the three teeth? Oh, like yeah. that's what you think of when you think of methamphetamine, but I actually had all my teeth. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't picking myself and it was one of those things where we just went dancing all the time. We would be up at, you know, starts using and around three and then we would dance all night, crash and go dancing again. And, um, but what I can tell you is the whole, uh, that, that methamphetamine look, uh, you know, the, the picking and the dark eyes and things like that, that happened many years after my using. And that just shows you how the disease does progress when it's left untreated, you know, and, and during that time I knew I had a problem, but I just wasn't willing to investigate it and look at it. I'm like, you know what I'm hearing and seeing things aren't there. This isn't normal. And um, I'm, I'm glad to know now, I know I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And it's because once I start using, I can't stop. And even when I put it away and I tell my family, myself and God that I'm done, I always find myself returning back to it when I didn't want to. And um, I understand that now, you know, but during that time, I was just this young 26 year old that just came out. And I thought this was a part about being gay and partying and using drugs and meeting men and things like that. I just didn't know that it was going to be as destructive as it was. And so were you basically just isolating and, and, and with yourself while your, uh, boyfriend was running the restaurants during the day. And I mean, did you have a social life or were you just, just sitting there in your place, just getting high all the time? Yeah. The relationship was very, um, he, he would work and I would stay home and, he wouldn't let me have any friends and I wasn't able to so leave the a house. Control, very, there's a control thing there too. Absolutely. It was very emotionally abusive. There were physical altercations and I wasn't allowed to go anywhere and do anything. And I ended up leaving him after three years and moving back to um, Cincinnati. And then I'd move back to California and move back to Cincinnati. And we did this off and on for three and a half, four years. And then I finally moved back to California, moved back to Cincinnati and stayed with my parents and, and that's when I decided that I was going to become a flight attendant. 
<laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And I actually got through without lying about certificates or anything like that. I actually went through the, the training and things like that. So, yeah. So the, the life of a flight attendant, that's got to be pretty uh, a liberating kind of free-for-all type of environment as well, right? Yeah. So just like North Carolina, just like Austin, Texas, and just like California, I had this attitude that if I just start over, fresh new slate, move here, do this, this addiction problem will just go away and I can use responsibly and we won't have any more issues with living and employment and mental health. This will all just go away. And that's all I ever knew. So I'm going to give myself some grace for that. But I got hired with an airline and uh, I did my flight attendant training in the Midwest. I'm not going to talk too much about the the actual airline or locations just because sure. I have to protect that part of my anonymity. But sure. um, I moved to the Midwest and uh, got hired with an airline. And I uh, the entire time I was with the airline in the training, I was using meth. And I told myself I wasn't going to do it. And that's the powerlessness of this disease is even when I tell myself I'm done, I always find myself returning back to it. I really have no control over that mental obsession when my mind, you know, the big book in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I work a 12 step program and they talk about this guy who put whiskey in his milk, milk and, you know, the thought just simply crossed his mind. If he put whiskey in it with his milk, he couldn't possibly get drunk. And that's really how this was when I was in my flight attendant training is the thought just simply crossed, just simply crossed my mind, very nonchalant. You know what, Mark, you can do this on Friday. And I remember walking in to the training center on Monday and just being a complete, utter train wreck. And I will never forget. So you have to be able to get um, all the passengers out of the aircraft, a burning aircraft or a ditching where they landed on water in 90 seconds. And that was the final part of our exam. They filled the aircraft up full of people. And I sat in that jump seat facing the airplane, facing the cabin under the influence of meth. And they said, Martin, we need you to evacuate this aircraft in 90 seconds. And I'll never forget. I got it done in probably five seconds because I was so tweaked out. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember I got those people out of that plane so fast and my attitude was like you know what i just need to smoke meth while i'm on these airplanes because if the thing goes down i can just get everybody out in a few seconds <laughs> and i continued to use when i was flying and things like that and i uh, really put myself and the passengers and crew in danger but let me tell you something i got those peanuts passed out so quick i go hot towel hot towel hot towel hot towel i mean i'll go through that cabin and just pass out those hot towels like you would not believe and uh, I find humor in it now because for a very long time, I used to beat myself up with a lot of guilt around, you know, the people I would put in danger for that. Sure. And, uh, uh, but I find humor in it now. And I've actually made amends to the airline. I actually called the in-flight manager and I uh, didn't go into graphic detail, but I did tell her, you know, that I was not an honest employee because I used to take the little mini bottles of vodka and take those back to my hotel room. And, and she just said, Martin, we just want to see you stay sober. And we're really glad that you called. So. Um, that's been, it's been a beautiful experience of sharing that. So um, I end up getting back with that boyfriend in California and I'll never forget. It was in uh, March of uh, 2010. And if you know anything about the Fresno airport, it's in the central Valley and it's surrounded by mountains. And in the winter and springtime, there's a lot of fog that builds up. And I was getting ready to work a flight from San Francisco 
to Chicago O'Hare and I have to get to San Francisco from Fresno. And I remember walking outside and seeing that plane. I thought, oh my, and I was under the influence. I said, that plane is going to go down. It was a small 26 seat turboprop jet. And I'm like, uh, uh, aircraft. And I remember thoroughly, so paranoid. I told myself that plane was going to crash if I got on it. And I called the airlines and I resigned. And that's really where I started to notice that I was starting to have mental health issues around my Matthews. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the paranoia, I mean, cocaine was my, uh, it was my drug of choice. And, you know, after day in and day out, man, you start to lose it and uh, you can't. And even though you think that you're, you're hiding it well and your people aren't noticing, even though you're thinking to yourself, ah, I might have an issue here. It becomes right. glaringly obvious that you're falling apart. You know, like you talked about the, the, you know, the gray and the weight loss and, and the fidgeting and just completely off your rocker. Uh, so, so you resigned in 2010. What, how did things progress? Um, so I ended up moving back to uh, uh, Northern Kentucky again, staying with my parents and I uh, got a job uh, working at a local fitness um, uh, company that's no longer around. It was urban active. And, uh, and I just, during that time, I was uh, continuing to abuse stimulants and um, just really focusing on my uh, weight loss. And uh, I was drinking heavily during this time and staying at my parents. And I got into another relationship with a much older man and I just took advantage of him. Um, it was more of like a sugar daddy situation. You know, it wasn't really an intimate loving relationship that most people want in life. And, uh, and uh, that relationship went sour. And, um, and then I just really got heavy into my addiction just, just every day, uh, using meth, drinking alcohol, smoking pot, having issues with employment, getting a job here, getting a job there, moving here, moving to this part of town, getting a roommate. I mean, my life was just chaotic. There was no stability in my life. And it was not one of those things where I was going to bed every night saying, you know what, I had a good day. It was every day. It's like, how am I going to get my fix for in the morning? And that was how I lived my life all the way up until I moved back to California in 2013. And I remember um, it was in February of 2013. Well, let me back up a little bit. I ended up opening a fitness studio at Newport on the Levee for a little bit. And I lost it because uh, I started using Again, I had some time of uh, abstinence where I wasn't drinking or using, and and I looked at my bank account because the business did so well, and I'm like, you know what? It's time to celebrate, and I, and I remember drinking and getting high that night and losing everything within just a matter of weeks because people saw my deception and dishonesty with the business, and that's just really the nature of addiction. We do silly, Absolutely. we just do silly things, and we do things that are just dishonest and deceptive, and it really turns people off, you know? So I was sitting in my apartment in Newport and a uh, eviction notice on the door. Uh, my parents aren't talking to me. Duke energy is being turned off. Internet's being turned off. I probably had like two or three days left on my cell phone before it was going to get turned off. And I found this support group. And this is the first time I have actually reached out for some help. Like, Hey, I think I need some help. And uh, I found this, uh, support group online out of California called the tweakers project. And it was ran by a man named Robert Gamboa, sweet man, beautiful man. And, uh, I reached out to that group that night and he called me and he said, are you willing to move out to California? I'm thinking, Oh God, not again, <laughs> you know, 
for the 20th time. And uh, he says, well, I'm going to get you into a rehab. And uh, it's a rehab specifically for gay men. And most of the gay men there have issues around methamphetamine use. And he said, are you willing to move out here? And I called my stepdad because my mom was leaving for England that night. And uh, I told him and uh, he bought my plane ticket, a one-way ticket out to uh, Los Angeles. And, uh, and that's where Robert picked me up, total stranger. I put all my faith in his hands and, um, and that's where it all started. I went to my first AA meeting while I was out there and um, I'd like to tell you that I stayed sober, but I didn't, you know, I had many relapses while I was out there. So was this a, a 28 day, 45 day, or was it a long-term deal? Yeah, it was a nine month, uh, nine month to a 12 month commitment for this rehab. It was called the McIntyre House. It's a beautiful place right there in uh, Hollywood, California, and it's ran by the Catholic Church and just a beautiful program. Um, I end up leaving after three months and uh, relapsing. And while I was in California, I did re- uh, rehab five times. Um, I was homeless most of the time from 2013 to 2016 while I was in Los Angeles for um, so on. So treatment and rehabilitation, I was, uh, either in rehab or I was homeless on the streets getting high. Wow. So what was the straw that broke the camel's back? What was the, how did it all come to an end? So, yeah. So, um, I was, um, living under a bridge in Los Angeles and being homeless in Los Angeles is so bougie. You know, you got the sun, You've got all these beautiful, luxurious things to not really. I mean, being homeless in Los Angeles is, was awful um, because there's a lot of homeless people there. I was going to say it has to be a huge population. Yeah. Um, and a lot of drug use too. So I was under a bridge homeless, and I remember having a few days left on my cell phone coverage. I remember scrolling on Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, I went to college with that person, went to high school with that person. Wow. Look at their lives. Their lives have, you know, just really flourished and they're doing great. And then I looked at my life and I'm like, how the hell did I end up like this? How did this happen? I remember reaching out to my friend, Linda, who works for the airlines and she got me on a plane ticket that next morning, uh, to fly from Los Angeles to Cincinnati. And, um, my friend took me to the airport. I got on that airplane, no lie, no toothbrush, no deodorant, just an ID, sandals, flip-flops. I stunk. I hadn't showered in days. Um, and I sat on that airplane and everyone I just felt was staring at me. And I got a, I remember arriving at CVG. It was freezing. And, uh, and I was like, who's picking me up and where am I going? Parents would answer the phone. Uh, friends wouldn't answer the phone. I said, I'm going to have to stay the night here. And that's when I was like, you know what? No, I do not have to live my life like this. And I said, I am done. And that's when I called central office, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, this is my situation. And they sent someone to come pick me up and they took me to sober living. Wow. And that was it. And that was it. Amazing. Well, so glad you found took a stand for yourself. You know, it, it only takes, can only take so much of yourself, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so now we're living in the, 
a pandemic, which is you know such a crazy time, but it, it is uh, really difficult for people who are trying to get sober or to try and tend to their mental health. Um, what are you seeing? You know, uh, first of all, how are you spending your time during the you know Corona days? Yeah, absolutely. So I had mentioned that I have a binge eating disorder. So that's really been something I have to manage every day because what do you do? It's like you walk, to, you're bored and you just walk to the fridge, you know? Um, but I've, um, you know, the gym exercise CrossFit, um, is a, you know, big part of my recovery today and going to meetings is a big part of my recovery. Uh, talking to my sponsor and my sponsees and my 12 step program is a big part of my recovery and really just having this attitude, like none of this needs to change just because this pandemic is happening. You know, um, I talked to my sponsor today. I talked to my two sponsees today. Um, I read my daily reflections this morning. Um, I'm going to take a walk tonight. I'm actually uh, traveling to Louisville tonight to see my boyfriend and we're going to take a nice long walk in the park tonight. Um, I'm still eating pretty healthy. Um, these are things that, uh, have not stopped. I'm also doing meetings. Oh my gosh, it's been beautiful. I've been going to meetings all over the world. I did a LGBTQ, um, recovery meeting, um, in Berlin, uh, a week ago. I met all these other gay men in recovery where we have these similar stories of, you know, growing up gay in a straight man's world. You know, we all have that same similarity and, we share each other's experience, strength, and hope. And it's just a real, it's been a real beautiful experience being able to meet people all over the world in recovery. Yeah. Now you have almost four years uh, under your belt. You've got coping skills. You've learned how to deal with different things and situations. Now for someone who is trying to get healthy, this is a hard time. You know, being in an in-person meeting with 15, 20 30 people that you can get your arms around and have coffee with, you know, a zoom meeting just doesn't measure up for a lot of people. They need that, that, uh, personal intimate, uh, interaction with each other. How are you seeing people navigate that who are new to the, to the program or. So staying connected is a huge part of, uh, the recovery process. I'm sure you've seen the TED talk where the guy talks about the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection. That's so true. Um, we've always had this attitude and philosophy that we can't make it on our own, on our own, by ourselves. We need other people to support us and to push us along sometimes because we don't always have the answers to life and we get our answers from other people. It's been really important for me just to stay connected at all times on the hour, every hour, reach out to a friend. How are you doing? You know, and if you're struggling with self-pity or loneliness or depression, you know, make your conversation about them, you know, see how they're doing, see how you can be of service to their recovery, or if they're not in recovery, just see how you can be of service to their day. Maybe they need a hot meal. Maybe they need someone to come over and do their laundry. Because what I've learned is when I get outside myself and I make it all about them and I am of service to them, my problems don't seem as big. They don't seem as bad. And um, here's another thing. I'm a big person on this. We've got to be kind to ourselves. We've got to be gentle with ourselves. and We've got to give ourselves grace. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to feel depressed and disconnected during this time. It's not okay to pick up and use. 
but it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have a couple of bad days. You know what? It's okay to have a bad week. We just don't pick up. We don't use. And we do our very best. And we give ourselves grace. We give ourselves some kindness. And we give, our, give ourselves a big pat on the back. And it's really important that we tell, each, tell ourselves that we, lo- we love ourselves today because we are worth it and we're going to get through it. We've gotten through worse things before in our life. We can get through this now. Right. I think a lot of us who go through an addiction or, or mental health struggles uh, at one point or another isolate. And this is a time of forced isolation in a lot of ways. And I think there's, there's people that are struggling with, well, if I'm forced to be here, forced to stay home, I'm going to drink or I'm going to use. What, what do you say to those folks who are, are trying to get a plan, but they just can't seem to get out of their own way during this time? The opposite of isolation and loneliness is participation. When you're feeling isolated and you feel disconnected and feel lonely, go participate in something. What are your hobbies? What are you good at? Listen, when God created us, when God was making us and forming us or your higher power, whoever your higher power is, was making you, you were born with a gift and a talent. Some of you have exceptional skills with music and art and cooking crafting, um, uh, collecting baseball cards, uh, playing board games. You're good at something. This is a perfect time for you to get out and really get back to the basics and really get back to some really awesome things. When we were children, we were into all sorts of things. I mean, some of us did all sorts of games like Pogs and watch Fraggle Rock. I mean, get back into those fun things. You know what I mean? You know, uh, you know, the key to happiness is to never lose your childlike tendencies. And, you know, this is a really good time. If you're feeling isolated, if you're good at crafts, go to Michael's or go to Walmart and get you some crafts and, you know, start a video blog with your crafts or, you know, teach somebody how to make crafts. Or if you have kids, do crafts with your kids or, Um, if you play an instrument, pull out the guitar and write a song, just keep your mind off of things. But also, like I said earlier, the opposite of isolation is participation. Go participate in your life today. Go participate in somebody else's life today. You really have the power to really change your attitude and perception about this pandemic. We can't be powerful if we're pitiful. So I, I encourage whoever's listening, if you're in that rut, if you're feeling discouraged and lonely, you have the power to restart your day right now and just really pull yourself out of this. Well said. Well, Martin, uh, congratulations on coming up on four years, man. I'm, um, I'm happy for you. That's, yeah. that's amazing. And, and thanks for all the work that you do. And, and thanks for taking some time to talk to me today. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it, Trevor. It's, it's always a pleasure to uh, share my experience with uh, folks of the world. So thank you. Well, take care of yourself. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.